there are groups out there who have really not let go of the old covenant. And it's so vital for you to understand that we have a new covenant, not an old covenant. The part that we have to grasp is what is a new covenant? Does that mean that the new covenant got rid of everything that was in the old covenant? No. We've talked about this many times. That law is still valid, but the condemnation, the, the location of the law, all of those things have been changed drastically. And I'll be the first to admit that I don't understand everything that's going to happen when I read Ezekiel, especially chapters 40 through 48. I mean, I, I don't get it. I don't know what that's going to be. I've been doing a lot of prep work for uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, warning, I already have 800 slides done. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll talk about it until it gets back. Yeah, That's just we one. might. Um, but there are 22 chapters, so... Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It. <laughs> it won't seem as bad as it sounds, but uh, it, it will take as long as it took us to get through the book of Hebrews. But in so doing that, um, there's just so many things that are coming to mind that are so applicable for us right now. And as I go through and prepare for that study, th this too is also a vital thing that people need to understand because uh, the festivals, the, the law, those who keep the commandments of God, I mean, it's all throughout the book of Revelation. And Revelation, as you go through it, I mean, the Bible explains most of it, but let me tell you, there's a lot that we will not be able to explain because it hasn't happened yet. And I'm always leery about looking at things prophetically to where everybody's got, hey, China's going to do this, Russia's going to do that, because it doesn't say that. And it's a revelation about Jesus, not a revelation about the details of what's coming for this world and in politics and in nations. It's about Jesus and you getting to know him on a deeper level. And... Ezekiel and, and all of this, the same thing. I, I don't understand all of that, but we will when it happens. Right now, we are a bride preparing ourselves for the groom. And the more we know the Bible, the more we know Jesus, the more you'll be prepared for that. We're just in prep mode. But you're never truly ready, right? It's like a baby when you're born. It's like, man, I never was ready for Noah to be born our first child, and I don't care how much time God would have given me. I was never going to be ready. You have to get to that point, and then God just pours out his grace to make you ready. And I think that's the way this prophetic aspect is going to be as well. And so what I want to show you here um, to start out tonight's here, we're just going to kind of build a little bit. We're not going to really spend time in Galatians, but talk about what we ended up talking about in Galatians chapter 4, where he's talking about these two covenants, the one with Hagar and the one with Sarah. And so you can go back and listen to the last one if, you, if that's new, if you weren't here for that. 
But he brought up that there are two covenants. Hagar was not a child of the prom or a wife of the promise or a child of the promise at all. Hagar stood for Mount Sinai, and then we saw Sarah stood for the uh, New Jerusalem. And Hagar actually also stood for the, the Jerusalem that now is, the earthly Jerusalem. You see, the earthly Jerusalem, a lot of people, a lot of Christians get all excited about the earthly Jerusalem, which, believe me, I love. But that's still of the old covenant. The new covenant of Sarah, the promise, Isaac, is of the Jerusalem that is above, it says there in Galatians 4. That's the one that we want to study. That's the one that we want to get to know. Not the earthly, but the spiritual. And so I want to kind of look at this new covenant and the sacrifice, because this is one of the things that's very puzzling for a lot of Christians, myself included, um, as you'll see as we go along here. In Deuteronomy 17, it says, Do not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep that has any defect or flaw in it, for that would be detestable to him. Only clean animals could be sacrificed. Anything else was an abomination. That's why Antiochus and, and Titus, when they came in and conquered Jerusalem, that they used pigs, an unclean animal, to sacrifice on the altar. And so the Bible, the Old Testament, the Torah, is very explicit about what animals, and even in what situations that these sacrifices were to be made. But in every situation... They always had to be a clean animal. The other thing that you always had to have with the sacrifice is blood. You weren't sacrificing plants. There were thank offerings of grain. But when it came to sin, it had to be blood. Couldn't be without it. And without blemish, all of these are things that Jesus had. He was clean. He was clean because he kept the commandments. He was holy. And he had blood. He had the power of, of his life that he could shed. So Jesus fits this acceptable sacrifice that you might call. And so what I want to do here, we, we see the same thing in Leviticus 17.11 here, talking about why these sacrifices had to have blood. The life of a creature is in its blood. Now, I've talked about this before, but it's, I think, important to understand that literally also that word life is nephesh in the Hebrew. It also means soul. So the soul of a creature is in its blood. The life of a creature is in its blood. And I think I've talked here before about how animals have souls. They have souls because they have blood. Now, I'm not saying that your pet, Fido, is going to be in heaven. Okay? Yeah. Even the wife... Oh boy, I, know, I, I was not expecting such an emotional reaction to that. But <laughs> um, even Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived in the book of Ecclesiastes, says, who knows whether the soul of the animal rises up or remains on the earth. I do believe there will be animals in heaven. Because, first of all, heaven is kind of a picture of Jeru uh, the Garden of Eden at the beginning. There were animals in the garden. We see all kinds of scripture verses talking about the lion laying down with the lamb, the child to play in the viper's pit. All I don't know what this is all going to be like. All I'm saying is that animals have souls, but they don't have a spirit. Okay? 
A soul is in the blood. Anything that has blood has a soul. We were created in the triune image of God, in a body, a soul, and a spirit. An animal has a body and a soul, no spirit. Okay, so there is a difference between an animal and a human. Evolution loves to make this just a matter of physical changes. You know, as I lose all my hair, you guys still remain more monkey-like, and I become a little bit more highly evolved because I'm losing more hair. Okay, that's what we call it, highly evolved. So... <laughs> Yeah. So, but the point being is, it's so much more than the physical differences that evolution tries to make it, more than DNA. There is a spiritual difference between an animal and a human being. Okay? So, I want to take you back to Hebrews that we've already gone through, you know, in, in a previous study, because... There was a reason that I've done Galatians and Hebrews together, back to back. I told you that my daughter is saying, are we done with this law stuff? You know, I think we've kind of beat that dead horse. Yes, my wife gets credit for saying that too. Uh, I think sometimes it's good that we get this over a few times because it is so foreign to the church to have a proper understanding of what the law is that it's going to take more than once to get a grasp of it, to hear it more than once. And so we're going to go through it a little bit quickly as far as Hebrews, since we went through that, like I said, you can go listen to it again, but let's just cover a couple of topics here on it. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices of the old covenant, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. That's why they had to do it over and over and over and over again, day after day, year after year. Now here he was specifically talking about the Day of Atonement, the year after year thing. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would go in. Uh, we, we talked about that again when we went through Hebrews. But For then they would have not have ceased to be offered, for the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins, but... In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Notice that it was a reminder. In some many circles, we think that in the Old Testament, you were forgiven by these sacrifices. I got to go take my goat, sacrifice it so I can be forgiven. But this is telling us, even in the Old Covenant... You were never forgiven. You couldn't be made pure and clean by that. It covered it. It was kind of a, a postponement. But it could never take away your sins. You could never be saved by doing those sacrifices. There were plenty of people who did those sacrifices that were not saved. You see, faith was connected to that, even in the Old Testament. And David talks about that all the time. And so, um, the biggest problem is that sins can't just be covered, they have to be taken away. And in the Old Covenant, that was impossible, it's telling us here. So, I think if you remember back in our Hebrew study, I gave the analogy of an EMT that the Old, uh, the Old Testament sacrifices were basically there just to keep you alive until you got to the doctor, Dr. Jesus. 
That's all it was. An EMT, his job is not to keep, you know, to, to heal you. It's just to get you to where you will be healed. And that's what this old covenant is that is Hagar, Ishmael. So in verse 5, Therefore when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Again, the context here, the author is saying these sacrifices weren't good enough. But these same ones are going on in the temple at the very time that the author of Hebrews is writing this and saying this. We talked about that back when. That I can't imagine, I mean, as hard as it is for me to be able to get people today to think differently, that's nothing compared to the, the crazy change that is being proposed by the author of Hebrews here to people who can just turn around and see sacrifices being offered in the temple in Jerusalem right now. Priests doing their duty. And he's saying there's a new high priest, there's a better sacrifice, and they're like, what are you talking about? So keep that in mind here. Because in their mind, this has been going on for centuries. It's worked. It's all they knew. So to prove this point, he goes to Psalm 40 in Hebrews. He quotes Psalm 40, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. The Greek Septuagint, basically the Greek translation of the Old Testament says, Sacrifice and offering thou would not have, but a body hast thou prepared me. So what I want you to see here is... When you go to Psalm 40, when it reads so that you can see up here and compare it to the Septuagint, body you prepared for me versus sacrifice and offering you did not prepare, my ears have been opened. That's a big difference. And I think the Septuagint has it right in the sense that you did not desire. It did not please. It could not appease. So sacrifice and offering you did not desire. It, he's saying the body you have prepared for me is the only thing. Jesus is the only thing that's going to be able to cover it because... These other sacrifices will not appease or take away sin. Um, Isaiah 53.10 says this, Yet it pleased the Lord, that's the same Hebrew word that we just looked at there before, to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of his Lord shall prosper in his hand. Basically saying the same thing, that God would be pleased, not with the animals, but with one sacrifice, the body that you prepared for the Messiah, the Christ, the Mashiach. And so, really Isaiah, I think is, that's what he's talking about. This is a messianic prophecy, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It ple that, that's the sacrifice that would please God, none of the others. Verse 6, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Okay. Can you see the contrast here between Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and Isaac? The contrast being one would never please God. 
and the other would bring pleasure to him. Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. In John 5.39, Jesus responded to the Jews who were all angry with him because he had healed on the Sabbath. And he said, you think that by reading the scriptures you have eternal life, but these are the scriptures that testify about me. And then in verse 46 of John 5, he says, if you would have believed Moses, you would have believed my words. You would have believed me. I like that because in this volume of the book, it is written of me. The Old Testament, even the Old Covenant, is all about who? Jesus. It was pointing to him. It was pointing to the new. It was never the end, end game. But always pointing to him. And he says, had you believed Moses? Now today I talk about Moses, people think law, law, bad, negative. But this is saying, if you can't accept Moses, you won't believe me either. Because Moses is speaking of me. And so you can't throw out the law. You just have to have a better understanding of the law. That's the difference between modern Christianity and what we teach here. We're not getting rid of the law. We're certainly not putting it back and saying, I want the old covenant back with sacrifices and things that I can do to please God. That will never please God. There is one thing that will please Him, and that is the body prepared. Jesus, Yeshua. That's the only thing that will please God. That's the new covenant. But to understand Yeshua, you need to know Moses. You just have to understand that those things are talking about Jesus, not some rituals that you had to do in order to be saved. Not something that you could do to please God. But these are the scriptures that testify of Jesus. And when you understand the law as Jesus, then the new covenant just starts to explode in beauty. Because it was all pointing to the new covenant. Verse 8, previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O Lord. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. That's exactly what the book of Galatians is telling us right now. There are two covenants, Hagar, Sarah. One is being taken away in order to establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body, there's that body again, of Jesus Christ once for all. See guys, this is not a renewed covenant. This is brand new, once for all. It's used over and over in the book of Hebrews. Verse 13, a new covenant, he says, he has made the first obsolete now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's interesting, becoming here, um, it shows that there was a time of transition taking place. And that's because, remember as he's saying this, they could look over there and see the temple and the sacrifices being made. And you say, oh, it's obsolete. They're like, what? I see it happening right there. 
there was a period of transition. But I do believe that is why Jesus had to have the temple destroyed in 70 AD. And as we talked about the third temple here a year ago or better, how we talked, we are the third temple. The church is so focused on building a third temple. And they're all excited about getting the third temple built. I believe that they will get that done. That's part of the Antichrist. He wants it, all of that. But that is not God's plan. You are God's plan. You are the third temple in which he dwells and lives. And so there was a transition period taking place here. Um, back in here, uh, verse 10. Sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, but Yeshua, after he had offered one sacrifice himself for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. I think we talked about back in Hebrews, in the temple there was no chair to sit down. When we see Eli in the book of Samuel, he's sitting and he was a priest. There's a reason I think scripture talks about that when he finds out that his sons have been murdered, uh, in, well, killed in battle. He comes, he was sitting on a chair and he hears that his sons are dead and that the ark has been captured and he tips over in his chair and breaks his neck and dies. There was no chair in the temple. He was lazy. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. See, the priest never sat down, but Jesus did. Why? Because his work was finished. There's a big contrast there. Verse 13, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected those who are being sanctified. So none of the animals that were sacrificed in the old covenant ever resurrected. But Jesus, he did. And this is why Paul said in Corinthians that if the resurrection has not happened, then your faith is in vain. The resurrection is indeed the most vital foundation of Christian doctrine that there can be. If that isn't true, then your faith is in vain. And the old, there is no real big difference between the old and the new then. Because part of the power of Jesus' life was that it was an indestructible life, as Hebrews says. But the Holy Spirit witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds I will write them. He is quoting Jeremiah 31. We have talked about this many times. But again, it's so important for you to see because this is what Galatians 4 is also talking about. You got Hagar and you got Sarah. You don't basically like I said, have a renewed covenant. You're not combining the two. They are absolutely two separate things. But he says this is the covenant, the new covenant that he's going to make. He's going to take the same law, but rather than it having condemnation, he now puts it in our heart. Rather than being on stone, it goes here. It goes in our hearts and in our minds, not stone. Remember in the Old Testament, it was kept in the tabernacle. Where is it kept now? In the tabernacle, the temple, the third temple. 
you. That's where it's supposed to be. That's why it's now new. Okay. Verse 31, then he or 17, then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Did God remember the sins in the Old Testament? Yes. He did remember their sins in the Old Testament. Does he remember your sins now in the new under Sarah? No. He doesn't remember your sins anymore. There is no condemnation. And that is a huge difference between the old and the new. So God could be reminded of the sins in the past. And I can't think of any verses right off the top of my head that you know, illustrate that in the Old, Old Testament, but they're there. God remembered their sins. Your sins have piled up to the heavens is another one, I guess. Yeah, they were never fully cleansed by the blood of goats and lambs. But by the blood of the lamb, he remembers them no more. So now, there, now where there is a remission of these, he says in Hebrews, there's no longer an offering. If he's not remembering your sins anymore, there's no need for a sacrifice. That's why Jesus said, it is finished. Okay. Um, at the end of Psalm 22, uh, we see Psalm 22 is a very messianic uh, psalm as well. Uh, kind of the same thing as Isaiah 53. You can't read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 without seeing Christ. But um, basically the things Jesus spoke there is what exactly he would do in those psalms. You can go look at that later. But that is what put an end to the sacrificial systems right there. Now Daniel supports this very thing as well. Daniel talks about that there would be the 70 weeks. We hear all the time about the 70 weeks of Daniel. We might talk a little bit about that when we get to Revelation. But for now, it says part of the 70 weeks are determined for your uh, people. It says part of it is to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins. That can only happen by Jesus. That was a prophetic picture of when Jesus would come because <coughs> none of that could happen under the Old Covenant. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west so far, has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, some believe that this old covenant is going to be reinstituted in a sense in this third temple. That is ultimately what the third temple, the temple institute of Israel, of Jerusalem is, the thing that Modern-day Christianity has given millions of dollars to so that the Jews can build their temple again. What you are supporting in trying to build that third temple on earth, the physical, is the reinstitution of temple sacrifices. Why would you ever want to do that? Yeah. Yeah, and some Jews want it built just because they think, yeah, it will be the beginning of the end, so let's get this over with and get it done with. But 
somehow they feel like they're being spiritual and helping the Jews to do that. Let me tell you, that is not what God wants them to do. He wants them to recognize the sacrifice of Yeshua. Well, look in Acts 21. Paul took the men the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Some people look at this uh, verse here in Acts because Paul, in chapter 21 here, actually goes to prove that he doesn't believe that you know, the law has been taken away. He goes and he, he goes through these vows and whatnot, and he makes an offering. And so they say, see, even Paul didn't say that these offerings were done, and it's okay for us to really get excited about offerings today. Well, that's not what's happening here. Um, Paul has taken a Nazarite vow. And there is, indeed, sin sacrifices that were made with a Nazarite vow. You can read about that a little bit, where basically they would cut your hair, and I think they would kind of burn some of it in the temple and whatnot, and then they would make these offerings. But... Um, since out of his own testimony, though, Paul's here, he speaks about these vows being made. Why does he have an offering made is the question. Well, I'm going to explain that in context of what's going on here in Matthew. Chapter 8, it says, A leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Well, Jesus put out his hands, touched him, saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So two things. One, we are in a transition period here when this is all taking place. The temple is still around. Two, keeping the context of what Paul is you know, saying, it doesn't fit that he's making some sin sacrifice here. I mean, every one of Paul's letters says there's no sacrifice for sin, so he's not doing a sin offering. The context of this passage is Paul was showing that they did not need to get rid of the law because you go read Acts 21, he's coming into town, and they say, listen, these Jews are saying that you no longer keep the laws of Moses. That you don't, you, you've abandoned all the customs. To show that there's no truth to this, we want you to do this purification thing. Paul says, okay. Why does he say okay? To show that there's no truth in the fact that he is getting rid of the law of Moses. Go read it. Now, um, in Matthew 8, 2, and by the way, he's getting rid, he doesn't believe that the law is gone, nor does he believe all sacrifices are gone. And I'll just put a pin in that, because I know that sounds terrible, but you'll see what I'm talking about. Well, yes. Yeah, for forgiveness, that type of thing, for sure he would be. But there is more than just for blood sacrifices for sins that are there. And we see these in Zechariah, Ezekiel, things that are end times, and there's no explanation if you get rid of everything. So, 
um, in Matthew 8, 2 here, only the priest could pronounce these lepers clean. That was according to the law. And then after they would be cleansed or pronounced clean, there was a sacrifice that was offered. But notice, Jesus has already pronounced them clean. So they don't need to go make a sacrifice because the high priest has already said you're clean. And so he says, you go show yourself to the priests. Why? As a testimony to them. So what Jesus was doing is he's telling them, you keep the law, because this is what the law said in the book of Leviticus. If you were a leper, you, you, this is what you do. The priest was supposed to pronounce you clean, and then you would go do the sacrifices. But he doesn't tell them to go do that. He says, you go keep the law, but don't. you're not going to break the law, but you have to go do the processes of keeping the law, you might say. In every healing that Jesus did, there was a forgiveness of sins, too, which is interesting. Um, because Jesus had the power to do that. Remember, the Pharisees were all upset with him when he said that your sins are forgiven. And he says, well, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? And so that you can know that I have the power to forgive sins, pick up your mat and walk. And that's what he does. So Jesus had the power to, to be that sacrifice, in essence. Um, a second verse used to support that these sacrifices continue here in Zechariah 14. It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. You go look at Zechariah 14, this is talking about end times, something that we have not seen yet. This is future. So it says they're going to go up to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So we're not done with the festivals yet. Go look at Zechariah 14. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. So this is, as I said, in the age to come, but... The sacrifices that are going to be made are not going to be, because remember the Feast of Tabernacles have sacrifices involved in them as well. We don't do that when we celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, do we? Of course not. Okay. Um, remember what Hebrews uh, verse 13, chapter 8 verse 13 said? That those sacrifices were a reminder of our sins. So there would be no need for that because there's no need to be reminded of our sins anymore under Yeshua in the new covenant. But that's exactly what Hebrews 8.13 said these sacrifices were for. They covered, but they were a reminder and a foreshadow of what was better coming. And it goes on here in verse 20. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them, in these pots. In that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Boy, that sure sounds like there's sacrifices being made. 
Well, yes. But the question has to be then for what purpose? It cannot be for forgiveness. Clearly, it cannot be. And this is the hang-up where we see some of the Hebrew root movements that this cultish is talking about, that some do get way off base because they use these verses as evidence that we're still going to be making sacrifices. Yes, but not sacrifices for sins. Cannot, or else we've got contradictions here. Impossible. Or else the resurrection of Christ is also in vain. Let me show you a Jewish understanding of this today. It amazes me that Jews who are so big into these sacrifices, even they, many of them, are understanding there will not be sin sacrifices when the Messiah comes. Well, he's here, and he's coming back. But this is what he say. Um, there's Rabbi Cook. He says that the animal sacrifices will not be reinstituted in the Messianic times. Okay, um, He says that at the time human conduct will have advanced to such high standards that there will no longer be a need for animal sacrifices to atone for sins. Okay. Good conclusion, wrong way of getting there. I mean, wrong, uh, maybe it's... This is like today's. Okay. Yeah, this is very modern. Um, but the two things that you want to see. First of all, um, there are two comings of the Messiah. They only see one. Uh, online, you can watch that. I have the Messiah ben Yosef and Messiah ben David, basically the son of David and the son of Joseph. They see Jesus coming as the son of David, this reigning king, not realizing he had to come first as the son of Joseph, a suffering servant. When he comes back, he's going to be that reigning king, the son of David. Um, they just missed his first coming. And so they just see the two comings as one. So anyway, here's what goes on. It says, only non-animal sacrifices. If you have a non-animal sacrifice, what kind of sacrifice is there? Grain offerings that the Bible does talk about. Yep, there's oil is usually with the grain offerings. Yep. To express gratitude, not for forgiveness, not to take away sins, but to express gratitude to God. There is a midrash that states in the messianic era, all offerings will cease except the thanksgiving offering, which will continue forever. This seems to be consistent with the belief of Rabbi Cook and others based on the prophecy of Isaiah 11, 6 through 9, that people and animals will be vegetarian in that time and none shall hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. So, they're acknowledging the sacrifices, but even they are saying it won't be a blood sacrifice. And yet we've got Christians today getting caught up in Hebrew root movements who are proponents of the sacrifices being reinstituted. May it never be. Jeremiah 31 in the New Covenant, Daniel 9, Psalm 40, all agree with what Isaiah 11 is saying here. 
Again, what you're seeing is a picture of a return to the Garden of Eden. Do you think they made sacrifices in the Garden of Eden? I think so. Grain offerings, not others. But I think that that was probably instituted from the very beginning. Anyway, um, just don't forget that in the Old Testament, those sacrifices never could take away their sins, even when they were offered. If there would be any sort of, of this, which I don't believe there is, at best, it could only be in remembrance of what Christ has already done. At best. But I don't believe there will be blood sacrifices. But just like in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to what Christ was going to do, or the Messiah was going to do, that at best, it could look back to remember. Just like what you know, people celebrate Christmas to remember a birth of Jesus, right? That's been done a long time ago, but yet they still continue to do it. It's a, it's a memorial type thing, right? Um, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Like I said, I know that we've covered this, probably beat it to death, but I just have to make it so clear. Because this is what not only Hebrews is talking about, but this is what Galatians is talking about too. Okay, Hebrews, Galatians, Acts, these three books, you've got to read them together. And Galatians, when he's talking about these two covenants and the law and it being gone, he's not talking about the law itself being gone. He's talking about its purpose, the old covenant purpose of the law, absolutely gone its location absolutely changed in the old covenant you we talked about this in galatians right and in hebrews you had a priest ministering year after year not anymore now you got one that reigns forever who sits down who was a better sacrifice that's the new covenant everything about the new and the old is uh, just completely different outside of the fact that we still have the same laws but with a different purpose and a different location. So in the Old Testament, people were trying to draw near to God when they made those sacrifices. Now that we see Jesus is the sacrifice, that's what allows us to draw near to God. The sacrifice. So getting to know Jesus more allows you to get to know God more, to draw near to God. I think that's very important. Let us draw near with a true heart. That we should have training. Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for both the present life and the life to come. That we are to labor and strive 
for righteousness and godliness. And we do that by drawing near to God. How do we do that? By chasing after Jesus and the truth, his word. And so going back to that verse that you read the scriptures thinking that by them you have obtained eternal life and you don't realize that these are the scriptures that testify about me, I think that we fall into that same trap even to this day that we think just because I get up and read my Bible every morning that, you know, I'm, I'm a good Christian. No, you can read your Bible every day. You can pray four hours every day. That doesn't make you a Christian either. You can keep the Sabbath. You can eat clean. You can, uh, you know, run away from all the pagan festivals and do all you want. That does not make you a Christian. Not even close. You see, those scriptures and those laws are all about Jesus. Just like in the Old Testament it couldn't save you, it can't save you in the New either. Only Jesus. And that's why this New Covenant is so much better. Because He did it all. Now, by keeping God's commandments, by trying to do those things, that's how we're drawing nearer to God, to know Him on a deeper, more intimate, wonderful level. And I think any of you here who have been doing these festivals with us, you will have seen that you haven't become a better Christian or closer to salvation, but you have gotten to know Jesus better. You've gotten to know the Word better. That's what this is about. The Word is Jesus. Some of you, I've, I've, my last newsletter um, that I sent out here in closing... I asked Logan, I said, did it make sense? I don't know if anybody else has read it yet or not. Because I didn't know if it made sense, but I was trying to... I'm too dumb and have not a good enough vocabulary to get out what's in my mind. I cannot put into words what I think. <laughs> I, I can't explain it to her to have her help me. But this seems to be a theme that God keeps putting in my life right now. What I was trying to illustrate in that newsletter. That in, in my book on Revelation, uh, in, in, you know, we're going to use that. That's going to be a good foundation for what I'm talking about when we go through. But I wrote that book a long time ago, and I just thought, I, I'm going to put what I've got there, but I want to add new things in. I want to learn more. I, wanna, I have listened to probably five or six different preachers on the book of Revelation. And I'm just constantly listening and listening and listening. Not to say that they had bad things or anything like that, but every single one almost was basically taking the book of Revelation and then taking it, not about the context of the rest of the Word of God, but taking it like the church that was being persecuted. Take it now, and it all goes back to, you could be persecuted someday, we're being persecuted now, but are we really being persecuted? You know, these other martyrs have, and it, it's all about us. Every bit of it had to be brought to us. Now, I'm not saying that that's, you know, a bad thing. I do that at times in my teaching as well. 
But what I'm saying is, is that I think that we have been trained so deeply in America to always make the scripture about us. The whole thing about, you know, the David and the giants. So where's, what giants do you have in your life? Whatever, it's always about us. Now granted, self-reflection is good. Again, don't take me wrong to where I'm saying, oh, these are evil people. They're not. But we've trained ourselves to make everything so much about us that we're failing to learn about Jesus as we read those scriptures. And that's what I'm hearing when he's saying, these are the scriptures that testify about me. Don't make it about you. In making it about me, Jesus, let me tell you, your life, the power of the word will fix you. Just the very power of it alone is going to apply it to your life without me having to try to apply it to your life. And when we go through the book of Revelation, that's what we're going to do is you're going to learn about the Bible as you study the book of Revelation because I'm telling you there's nothing in there that isn't already written somewhere else in the Old Testament and in the New in some cases. It's already there. And people say, oh, you can't understand it. Well, then you might as well throw the rest of the Bible out as well. But we never read the book of Revelation in trying to understand the word better. We read it, what's going to happen? What should we do? What, what, am I going to be persecuted? Is it going to happen in my lifetime? That's what we look for when you read the book of Revelation. That's not what you're supposed to be looking for. You're supposed to be diving into the Word so that you see, oh, this is what Isaiah was talking about. Oh, that's a, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the very opening words of the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so in so doing and studying that Word, God and His Holy Spirit just applies it to your life without you even having to do it because you're getting to know him better. That's what whatever this is, is about. Yes. Whatever this is, it's about getting to know him better. Knowing the Bible and his word so that you can see and connect the dots so that now all of these pieces start forming into a picture it looks just like Jesus. That's what I want you guys to get out of this. And I think one of the reasons that this is on my mind so much lately is because of the season that we've just gone through. Most of you didn't really do anything for Christmas. You celebrate the birth of Jesus back in September and October. We, we, we did those things. It's not like you're against the birth of Jesus, but you were stepping away from things. And I saw many of you were struggling how do you do this with your families and all of this and that? And I was a little concerned that maybe some of us were getting a little sidetracked that this is about you getting to know Jesus better. It isn't about Christmas or not Christmas. This is about getting to know Jesus better. And Again, I'm having a hard time putting this into words as far as how, that, how you apply that. I'm not so worried about that. 
All I know is that if you love truth, you love his word, all of those other things are just going to fall into place naturally without you having to try and figure it out. You just chase after truth. Love him. Love his word. And do your best for you to follow it without any condemnation when you fail because maybe you'll keep the Sabbath, but I'll bet you'll have a lustful thought. Doesn't mean you should stop trying to have lustful thoughts or these other things. The point is, is by you not doing Christmas doesn't make you one bit better than the person who just did. The only thing that you got by not doing Christmas, I'm hoping, is that you had a deeper understanding of Jesus because you were studying his word and the truth of things in there. That's all I can hope for. But as soon as we get off track thinking that this old covenant is a means of me pleasing God, remember what Hebrews said? Those sacrifices, those offerings did not please him. What pleased him and the only thing that pleased God was the body prepared, Yeshua. And that has to be the very foundation of everything we do, everything we study. It is the foundation of Yeshua. When you do those festivals, it's Yeshua. It's about him. When you read the Old Testament, it's not about the story of Daniel and the lion's den so that you can put your kids to bed at night. It is the story, although what a terrible story to read at night. <laughs> it's about Jesus. Every bit of the old was to point you to the new. But we don't look at the old that way. We're looking at the old in a different perspective. We're looking at it as some way to please God or whatever the case might be. But no, look for Jesus in the old. And then you're going to understand the new better. So that's what Paul, I really believe, is talking about here in Galatians 4 in making a comparison between these, these covenants. He wants you to see the difference and you should never want to go back to the old. Never. And that is not what we're doing here. That's not what you're doing when you're celebrating the festivals. You're not going back to the old covenant. Okay? I know that's what a lot of people are going to think you're doing, but that's not what you're doing. It could be if you have the wrong mindset, though. Make sense? All right. Any thoughts, questions? Okay, we're going to close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just are so grateful for this new covenant that you have put your law in our hearts, in our minds, that you are that word that became flesh and dwelt among us, that you are that word that is going to return, that you are that word that we want to lift up. You are that word that we want to know. Give us an understanding and never let Satan deceive us by drawing us away to be legalistic, drawing us away to be um, trying to earn a spot on your team. Lord, we know that you have done it all. 
And because of that, Jesus, we want to follow you. We want to obey you. We want to keep your commandments because it isn't about salvation. It's about knowing you better. So let us see you more clearly. Teach us your ways that we may walk in them and continue to find favor with you. In the name of Yeshua we pray. Amen.